You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Occultism, cultural appropriation, serial killers, cannibalism, faces being ripped off, racism, and... The Hog. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. As you are all aware, I am as big a skeptic concerning the truth of ghost tales as any man you are likely to meet. Only I am what I might term an unprejudiced skeptic. I am not given to either believing or disbelieving things on principle, as I have found so many idiots prone to be. And what is more, some of them not ashamed to boast of that insane fact. I view all reported hauntings as unproven until I have examined into them. And I am bound to admit that 99 cases in a hundred turn out to be sheer bosh and fancy, but the hundred, well, if it were not for the hundred, I would have very few stories to tell you, eh? From The Thing Invisible by William Hope Hodgson. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe, a podcast about pulp and old-timey genre fiction. Uh, I'm Philip, and with, o- with me as always is Adam. Hello. How's everyone? And uh, today we're talking about these um, uh, series of stories by William Hope Hodgson starring Thomas Karnacki, the Ghost Finder, a um, early uh, occult detective character. Um, not not anywhere near the first, really, but um, sort of the most popular one of his era, I think. Yeah, to the extent where people were still doing pastiches of him like fairly recently like in 2000 somebody was writing oh yeah yeah um there's like not just pastiches like this character has appeared in hundreds of books since then um right by other authors including the league of external gentlemen of course yeah yeah well everybody has even saturn and ferrando was mentioned in that one um (laughs) well he was uh, but he was a major character in one of the league of external gentlemen books yeah yeah yeah. um thomas karnacki was um a character in century 1910 Mm-hmm. Um, prominent character in that one but yeah uh yeah he appeared in um nine stories by william hope hodgson um in the uh all in the early 20th century uh hodgson's career was cut short when he was killed in world war one uh at uh, the fourth battle of Ypres. uh is that how you pronounce it yep <laughs> okay in uh april yep. eight, 1918 and um yeah, which is unfortunate because I I feel there's 
like the latter ones were were the better ones, and I I would have liked to. Well, I mean, World War One is unfor- yeah. unfortunate in general, but yeah, too, yeah, it is too bad he died. He was definitely evolving in some interesting ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he was still into them then. It wasn't kind of a story where it wasn't one of these things where he's like, oh, I'm getting sick of this kind of thing. He would have kept going. I anything. believe so. I mean, yeah, um, I believe so. Uh, some of the stories, Karnaki stories, were actually published after his death, right. um, including The Hog, which is uh, the one most people remember. Oh, you mean The Hog? Yeah. <laughs> I love the hog. It's so t- it's such such a cool title, <laughs> dramatic yet silly to me. Anyway, uh, so Karnaki's um, uh, we should probably talk about a cult detective as a trope in general. It's sort of like if Sherlock Holmes hunted ghosts, mm-hmm. uh, and it's yeah. Like, I mean, there um, are a million. Just to be clear, there were a million Sherlock Holmes knockoffs, you know, in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, just to begin with, and then this is that given the extra twist of, you know, hunting ghosts, basically. And uh, although, yeah. although I guess, uh, actually, even before Sherlock Holmes, we have Auguste Dupin is probably, is again, once again, the, the, the real progenitor of that whole thing. But Sherlock Holmes made it popular. Doing some, uh, a little bit of research. I've read a few other uh, uh, paranormal detective characters. Um, uh, I mean, we did an episode on Simon If, but he's kind of a different deal. He had... You know, he's a magician, but he didn't solve like uh, ghost cases. Right, and he's a he's a late entry too. He kind of yeah. That, yeah. that was almost more like it, because they were by Alistair uh, Crowley. He he went, um, yeah, I've got to get in on this, but I have actual magical ideas. Whereas you know the others are dabbling with pseudo scientific spiritualism, which I, I think we'll talk about in a bit. But um, yeah, one that's usually listed as the first is Harry Escott by. Um... Uh, the character by uh, uh, James Fitz O'Brien. I read the two stories he was featured in. Um, he's not uh, quite in the same mold. He's not really like a detective who seeks out these things. He just comes across two supernatural events in in the stories. Right. And, did uh, he have he a series of from... did, did he have a series of like supernatural stories or, or series of stories and these two happen to be supernatural or is it just he's in these? two No, stories no, it's just it? just. Yeah, just these two stories. Yeah. Okay. Right. But yeah, he, he does, you know, do some investigating, but like he's personally connected with both cases. So it's not like he's, it's not like a Sherlock Holmes situation. Right. Um, um, after that, uh, the next big one uh, is um, Dr. Uh, Hisalius by uh, J. Sheridan Lathanu. Um he appeared in one story uh, where he's a uh, doctor who also believes in supernatural stuff, and he, he has a case of um, um, uh, trying to protect a man from a demon, but uh, unfortunately it goes wrong because the man doesn't take his advice, uh, and the man kills himself. So kind of a downer ending there. Uh, Lofano used uh, Hezelius as a uh, framing uh, device in a... Uh, short story collection uh sorry i didn't write this down i think it was called through a mirror darkly or through a glass darkly yeah through a glass darkly that was it um and uh this was actually what uh, carmilla appeared in so that actually has a um dr hazelius framing device hmm. in that it's from files that dr hazelius found so like he 
he was researching this and found Laura's diary, and that's where Car- that's how we have access to Carmilla. Is it, um, he, but he's only in those two stories. Uh, he's only in the one story. The other one, he's just like right. there. His files. Right. It's a it's a book, but it's all sort of framed as his files. Right, right. Um, but that counts as him being in the story. Is all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, like these weren't characters that really caught on, and they weren't interesting characters in their own right uh for the most part um although uh karnaki is basically just sherlock holmes but he also believes in supernatural stuff but like there, there's more there to hook into yeah um, it's as we come in later he's not he's not a he doesn't have a watson uh well he, he sort of sort of has multiple watsons but he they're the people he tells the story to and yeah he He's mostly interesting in that he's so rigorously, uh, you know, rigorously devoted to solving these cases via whether it's supernatural or or mundane. Uh, so that kind of makes him yeah. interesting in that regard. But he's not; he's just a vehicle for the stories. Essentially, he's not. Yeah, he's not yeah. An interesting character. But uh, he's more uh, interesting than the the previous characters of the of that mold. I think, though, uh, it gets kind of. Uh, ridiculous later there's um there's a number of like this this was a whole cottage industry um uh sax romer who created um uh fu manchu uh had a character named morris claw uh the dream detective yeah haven't read any of those cool name though uh there's a character named flaxman low um there's uh dr tanover who was written by uh diane uh dion fortune who was an actual uh occultist Member of the Golden oh, Dawn okay. and all that. Did, so. so, did did they beat um did they beat Alistair Crowley to writing detective fiction, or? Uh, I think a little later. I think uh, I think it's from twenty six, so it would have been after Crowley oh, okay. wrote it. Right. Yeah. Okay. John Silence, Algernon Blackwood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John Silence, uh, which is a character uh I keep hearing about, and it seems to be a similar uh thing to um. Karnaki, but I haven't read any of them. So, mm-hmm. but that's uh, Algernon Blackwood, who's very well regarded, but I haven't really read him. Um, so yeah, that um, those are some of the big ones. I also read some stories featuring uh, Sardab Notal from uh, uh, by uh, oh yeah, sorry, they they don't actually they're not sure who created the character. It's like one of those pseudonym things, but uh, French. Um, occult detective character a little more leaning into more explicit like uh super like superhero stuff like he's got um i don't know he's got a a whole aesthetic going on uh he dresses in like um a turban and um stuff even though he's apparently actually a white guy oh okay (laughs) so some serious cultural appropriation going on well that was to have access yeah, that was yeah. a major thing at the turn of the century for stage magicians as well as, you know, yeah, yeah. fate but, psychics um, and things. Yeah, he also had access to the elixir of life that seemed to make him immortal. He was like a millionaire hmm. or a billionaire uh, before that even existed. Um, <laughs> when did that, uh, when was that published, those stories? I think it was early 20th century, but it was in France and it wasn't translated until fairly recently. There's a... Huh. Um, I read the first volume in English, which is uh, uh, published by Black Coat Press under the uh, 
uh, title uh, Sir Dove No Tell uh, versus Jack the Ripper. It uh, features his uh, recurring nemesis, um, uh, Tarsimkov. It's a Russian name, sorry. I wouldn't be able to pronounce it even if I had it in front of me. But he was an uh, evil hypnotist who committed crimes. He was sort of like a Phantomah-type character. But at the end of the like the second or third last story, it's revealed that he's actually also Jack the Ripper. Okay. Uh, and he actually committed the Ripper murders to get uh, Sardubnotel um, off of the uh, trail of the other crimes he was committed, which <laughs> makes no sense. It's the one of the stupidest things I've ever read. Like, the stories aren't bad, but that's like a stupid twist. I actually made fun of it in my comic. Yeah. <laughs> I had somebody like... point out that nobody believes to Sardubnotel that it's... It makes no sense and nobody believes it. Yeah, he was trying to distract from his uh, bank fraud by being a serial killer, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I don't... No one will ever suspect uh... Well, you have to admit it's so stupid, no one would ever suspect it to be the case. Yeah, That's, that's the genius. Uh, anyway. anyway. No, but it is interesting that you mentioned that he's got, uh, like, the guy with the turban and he has... You said he has magical powers, right? Like he actually has. Uh, sort of, yeah. Um, he has a um, uh, medium uh, that works for him, who he channels psychic uh, energy through, and uh, with the both of them, they can like telekinetically lift things and so forth. Okay. And he seems to be immortal from uh, an right. elixir of life that he. Well, has. see, th there were a lot of uh, characters in sort of the Golden Age, even sort of before Superman. Uh, before superheroes really got codified, the sort of there was a stretch where you know magician characters, Mandrake the magician being the most famous one, yeah, uh, appeared, and a lot of them did have, um, you know, they they did the thing where they had a turban and a tuxedo. Uh, Ibis the Invincible and uh, Sargon the Sorcerer, two examples, and they um, the Sargon the Sorcerer had the Ruby of Life that gave him powers, which kind of so that really sounds like he was inspired by that kind of character from what from what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this is a French book that uh, or a French series that didn't take off in English, so um, but yeah. it's coming from that that so I don't think he's a direct influence on like Sargon the Sorcerer, but. I mean, it could have been, but I, I doubt it. But uh, it's coming from the same place, I think. Right. I mean, there maybe there was a like a. I, I I'm not sure if there would be a specific uh, magician, but maybe there was a well-known magician in that era who wore a turban and was kind of inspiring people in that regard. Um, yeah, maybe. They, like, um, Sardov Notel. We're talking a lot about this one character, but uh, he actually does sort of like. People do think he's Indian or Arabic or something, but he's actually just a white guy. So right. there's like, it's not just a turban. He's got the whole thing going on. Right. Well, that's, see, I mean, that's, that, well, that does tie into what we're talking about here. Um, that that was the era in which uh, stage perf ma magicians and, and uh, stage performers of different kinds were, uh, you know, they were real rock stars with the, the biggest one, of course, being Harry Houdini. And, um, Houdini and uh, was was, I think a huge influence on uh, this whole era of Pulp Fiction, including the Karnacki stories. Um, uh, Houdini and uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, famously, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, were were uh, famously they they were colleagues, friends, uh, and then they had a falling out and. The great irony is that uh, Doyle, who wrote about the ultra-rational Sherlock Holmes and who debunked... And, and Sherlock Holmes has a lot of stories where he debunks uh, 
the supernatural, including Count of the Baskervilles, of course. Um, he, uh, but Doyle in person was was actually a big spiritualist and an occultist. He did believe in. Uh, he was actually pretty yeah. credulous about that stuff. Whereas Houdini, yeah, he fell was, for the um, the fair what, what the Cottingley fairies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was an obvious fraud. Like anybody could fake that. Well, to be um, fair, this is like photography had just been invented, so maybe people weren't, you know, people were a little, uh, a little more susceptible. Yeah, but time, you but... have to like it's not that hard to fake a photograph of that sort. I don't know. Yeah, no, there you see the photos, and they're just so obviously fake. It's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, but you know, at at the time, you know, a photograph was kind of a rare commodity at all, so it's it's something. And people were, uh, but that's the thing. People were the 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 Cottingley fairies hoax was the idea, not not that there were literal fairies, but that uh, these girls could project their psychic thoughts and had created fairies out of their thoughts uh that was that was the supposed uh the supposed uh uh magic of the cottingley fairies and houdini so houdini was very loudly and uh and overtly a skeptic and a debunker of mysticism and spiritualism um it, it's worth noting that the spiritualism and doyle thought he actually had magic powers and yes yeah. denying it yeah that is the most hilarious thing because they literally <laughs> fell out because houdini was like no i do not have magic powers let me show you how i do these tricks and doyle was like oh i see you're covering up your actual magic abilities <laughs> He couldn't convince the guy that he didn't have magical powers. That's that's just hilarious to me that that was what, and he just got so frustrated that they 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 fell out with each other. <laughs> just really. There was actually a short-lived uh, detective show called uh, Yeah, um, about uh, Houdini and Doyle solving crimes with a female uh, police detective. Um, yeah. I didn't watch any of it, but I don't know. It's an interesting yeah. premise. Yeah, I, I did. I saw that when I was doing research for this, that there was that, that like a few years ago, there was this uh, Houdini and Doyle buddy cop show, which was, I think, actually meant to be a miniseries. It was like a British show. So I don't think it, I don't think it, uh, it I think it was just a short thing. I think it was probably Murdoch Mysteries-esque, but uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I think uh, I was in the other room while my mom was watching it and they did an episode on, uh, on vampires because Bram's in the, you know, it was about people who read Bram Stoker and Right. You know. Yeah, exactly. Like, were they vampires or were they not? You know, it's back right. and forth with the right. anyway. Yeah, no, and, and I mean that was that was the thing. So so just as that that sort of reflects and to be clear, Houdini and Doyle I think Houdini didn't actually get really loud about uh debunking like he was always doing it, but he, he really came to prominence as a debunker in the uh twenties, I think. And that's when he fell out with uh, well, that's when he met and fell out with Doyle, I think. So technically, that wouldn't have inspired these stories, the Karnaki stories. But it does show you that these two opposing elements were in the air at the time, that there were both spiritualists, people who were trying to pseudo-scientifically prove the existence of the supernatural and the occult and ghosts and things like that, and people who were just as eager to debunk it. And uh, I think that push and pull is very heavily inspired by the Karnaki stories, because it, it as we, uh, just to, to make it clear, Karnaki's kind of unique almost, as far as I know, in that some of his adventures are actually supernatural, and some of them turn out to be hoaxes that he debunks, right? And some of them are hoaxes that also have a supernatural element. <laughs> right, yeah. You, you never know what you're, and there's, there's one story where there's no mention of supernatural stuff, and he's just solving a somebody forged a, a fake book right so i mean they're sort of um 
you never know what you're going to get with these nine stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which that may be part of the reason he's uh, made a bitter, bigger impact because there's a real, you know, surprise here. You don't know if you're going to like be, tell a story. You know, some of them are fairly. The one about the uh, the supposed haunted dagger, like there's a there. It turns out to be a a medieval era. Well, maybe not medieval, but an ancient, uh, an old timey contraption that was built into this castle that was meant to, you know to sabotage people and, and the dagger would fly off its uh its holster and, and kill people if the, the master of the castle wanted it to be so but people would think it was a ghost doing it and and karnaki was able to determine that it was that it was this uh, mechanism doing it and the the lord of the manor had, had set it up um which is kind of clever as you say the one where the uh the the, the there's a forged book which is you know uh, actually the the original was the forger was stuck in in a in a in the library where everyone could look at it and the original was being passed around as a second copy which was supposed to be impossible um so there's some some cleverness to that but then there's also just full-on uh supernatural things going on uh and, and as you say yeah there's there's at least two stories where someone is trying to pull a, a supernatural hoax but at the same time there is also something supernatural going on right like yeah in one case um the um one with the horse, I can't remember what it was. The Horse of the Invisible, oh. which is my yeah. great title. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. In that one, um, the uh, the horse actually man, or uh, according to Karnaki's explanation, the horse actually manifests because of the hoaxer. Um, like he he just sort of psychic, um, he sort of calls it into being. Right. Uh, with his actions. Although does is interesting, but although they also sort of talk about how it was this ancient legend of a horse of a ghost horse. That yeah, came. yeah. So, so it's but it, it um, he's uh, Karnaki at the end is is skeptical whether um, this was actually that ancient legend or if um, or if the hoaxer brought it into being or brought it into being through right, you know. Psychic, I guess beaming it into existence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> beaming it. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, that was that was a thing. Of I was actually reading uh, one thing that got mentioned was apparently near the end of his life, Sigmund Freud uh, started to believe in ideas like telepathy and and telekinesis, and that that might be possible as well. And his his apparently people near him sort of said, you know, encouraged him to downplay that because they think he was a crackpot, which. People were starting to, by that point, that would have been the 30s or 40s, people would have probably been a little more leaning a bit harder towards skepticism towards that stuff. Uh, but um, it does show you that, that yeah, that was, it. I think late 19th, early 20th centuries, there, was act, there were very serious scientific, um, you know, groups uh, being formed to investigate the possibilities of ghosts, mediums, uh, psychic abilities, telekinesis and telepathy, Things like that, like and 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 Karnaki is of that nature because he's a he's a medium, he's a he's an occult detective, but he he does he uses he has certain scientific methods which he's found to be effective within the world of the story, and which he you know he does you know he does do a certain amount of uh, scientific um, experimentation, like he you know he tries one thing, sees if it works, and. If it doesn't work, he tries another thing. So he's, you know, and he, he tries to be very level-headed about it. He doesn't just go, you know, oh, we don't understand. Like, there isn't a lot of, there isn't a lot of hype for the supernatural in these stories. It's like, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe it's just a hoax. Maybe it's nothing, right? Yeah. And uh, as he says in the, uh, in the uh, opening reading we did, um, 
he says 99 out of 100 it's it's a hoax or you know or just somebody imagining things but mm-hmm. occasionally you get that one right cool supernatural thing exactly which is which is uh and and as you say it, it's just as much as it's not necessarily oh an ancient ghost or something from legend it can be tied into things like oh maybe that as you say, the cel- the telekinetic or telepathic person is manifesting a an entity. Uh, that's actually yeah, a possibility. There, as well. There's there's one where the uh, emotions of somebody dying um, work their way into the um, material around him. So like the room uh, absorbs his uh, his sorrow and his his dying thoughts, and that's what causes the haunting. So right. it's sort of got these sort of pseudo scientific uh, explanations for how things work. Right. Karnacki himself, his, uh, his, his big methodology is the electric pentacle. So it's a pentacle, obviously the famous five star, five pointed star, uh, set up in an arrangement to protect the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the person in the center. Uh, but he believes that, and, and it, it, it's, it's really cool because you can see at this point that electricity is this pseudo occult pseudo mystical thing as well and he even says in one of the stories what is electricity we don't know do we we don't know what it is maybe it's a paranormal phenomenon uh so electricity is actually useful at keeping out spirits in the karnaki stories which is kind of interesting um he runs he runs it through the pentacle yeah yeah so um how did you because it doesn't did you think of it as like um neon tubes set up in a pentacle shape or like um lights at the corners of the pentacle with wires in between yeah he doesn't describe it that thoroughly i actually would have i would suspect there there wouldn't it be any visual aspect to it at all i think it's it's no no, he says he says it it has a blue glow does he okay i missed that well i know he's then he gets into the thing with the colors and the circles in the hog that that's a later one yeah but yeah yeah, but, um, uh, but no, he uh, does yeah. say there's a blue glow. Um, oh, okay, um, all right. There, there was a uh, TV adaptation of one of these stories, the the Horse of the Invisible, um, which was uh, done for the BBC in oh, I didn't check the date. I think it was the 70s uh, on a show, or possibly 80s, um, a show called um, The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, which I'm guessing was an anthology series oh, okay. featuring other Sherlock Holmes type characters from the time. Oh, that's a cool um, idea. Yeah, uh and at least this episode uh was uh an adaptation of Karnacki uh starring Donald Pleasance um who's uh best known for the Halloween movies. He's the psychiatrist mm-hmm. in the Halloween movies. He's also the villain in Puma Man <laughs> or Puma Man as he said. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um but uh yeah, he he was quite good in the, in the role. Um it's pretty much basically just the story from the from the thing, but uh, with a bit of expansion stuff, uh, conversations with the family and stuff, a little more um, uh, casual chit chat and stuff to to establish characters, because you know you can only fit so much into a short story, and you have longer on a fifty minute TV show. Hmm. Um, and it didn't have the framing device with the uh, with the three idiots who ask him questions all the time <laughs> yeah that got a little repetitive but so so you're saying that when it portrayed it it was kind of a so i guess then something like a jacob's ladder or a or a you know a, a 
fan, uh, what's it called? A fan. Well, basketball. on the show, yeah, on the show, it was uh, it was wires with uh, uh, sort of lights at the corners of the star, um, with wires in between. Uh, but I I was imagining it like um, neon tubes um, intersecting into the shape of a pentacle. So I'm not sure. It's it's not entirely clear. There is some sort of light thing coming off of it. Yeah. And uh, not to interrupt the ritual, but uh, it's time to take a break and plug some products and or services. We'll be right back with What Mad Universe. We're the Spirit Hunters, and we're a show that treats Hunter Hunter and Yu Hakusho's author as the center of the universe. Some weeks, we do linguistic analysis. So the Chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine, but so the changed meaning in Japanese, it means to temper. Other times, we get absolutely smashed. So we take one shot every time. Yusuke uses the ray gun. One hour later. This is the least coherent episode. Sarah, you you can find out more about the Spirit Hunters right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Fans of video games, history, or video game history will definitely want to listen to Retronauts. Each week, Bob Mackey and myself, that's Jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today. Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network. It, it just the 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 he has a ritual which he called the sa ba ritual with there's, three there's a's. six a's yeah there's six a's <laughs> uh, three a's after the s and three a's after the m right and then he talks about uh, what is it a a r t and say r t say say a t um, manifestations uh, so these are made up for for the these right. stories all these words are nonsense words. Uh, but in this case, there's uh, ARE and uh, SEATI uh, manifestations, uh, the latter which are more dangerous and can get through his various wards. Um, uh, there's also a Sig Sand manuscript that he keeps mentioning uh, with, um, and a, yeah, like you said, Sama ritual, which has uh, eight signs that you have to do. It doesn't, it's not clear in what those look like. And there's also an incantation of Right. He really liked that three A's thing. <laughs> he liked to have too many vowels than than more vowels than any human language has that I'm aware of. Yeah, like you like the you know the um, cliche of fantasy elf names having too many vowels in them, but like taken to an extreme. Yeah, yeah. It's it's clearly yeah. It's meant to imply it's some kind of either ancient yeah. or exotic ritual. Lovecraft but... was better at coming up with nonsense words, I think. But to be fair, I mean, putting that aside, he other otherwise he makes it sound fairly plausible. Because he doesn't specifically say, oh yeah, this is an ancient uh, ritual conducted by an ancient people. He just says, like, he, he makes it a bit in the Crowley or Osmond Spare style of like it's almost like a modern day adaptation of a ritual, and there's certain lines that you can say, and and you like there's the the unknown last line, which at some point gets mysteriously spoken uh, to resolve a ritual. Um, oh, and there's there's the idea of sort of charging. It's not holy water, but you can uh, you can charge water in a certain way to uh, to protect you from uh, otherworldly entities. And and like I say, there's it, there's a real mix of sort of Oh yeah, I found this in an ancient manuscript, and oh yeah, I, I 
what we what you might call Ghostbusters stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. I was I was thinking Ghostbusters the whole time reading this because uh, it it does have that um, like you said mix of ancient rituals and uh, modern gizmos empl- right. em- employed in a um, pseudo scientific way. And of course, uh, Dan Aykroyd, who wrote Ghostbusters, is a big believer in all this stuff as well. So he's probably literally yeah. Uh, he apparently comes from like uh, generations of ghost of yeah. ghost hunters. Really, his family. I did not know that. But yeah, that that just shows that this is probably the. You can see that uh, that's probably this is probably the the heyday of that kind of scientific ghost hunting, right? Like, there's oh yeah, we've got gadgets and stuff that we can use. You know, people believed in the supernatural, but they also were taken with all the cool new techno gimmicks that had been invented by people like Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla. So, you know, they had to get some electricity in there and you had to get some, uh, you know, I'm surprised ectoplasm ne- never gets mentioned because I know that was a huge obsession with uh, early 20th century media mediums. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, I'm, I'm guessing it probably came up in more of the... Uh, like stories written by more believers. I'm not sure what Hodgson's actual opinions on this this stuff was. Oh, really? Because well, I, I read it. I read it very much as that he's a believer in it, and he's trying to literally inform people about it. Okay. Uh, when you get to the end of um, when you get to the end of the hog, um, you uh, <laughs> there's a um, uh, he literally goes on for like three or four more pages describing very specifically like. The levels of the color, which, you know, he believes color can have an impact on keeping out the supernatural and keeping out the the forces that be. And then he's got a whole... Blue is God's color. Yeah, blue is God's color. Uh, Purple and red are the most violent colors, apparently. And he's got a a pseudo-Lovecraftian cosmic uh, mythology to it that he describes in that story. Yeah, Um, which is actually a tie-in to a... uh... A novel he wrote called House on the Borderland, which I read years back, um, which um, uh, features uh, a uh, race of uh, pig pig humanoids called swine things uh, who come from the underground and um, and there's they worship some sort of giant, you know, extra dimensional hog head. Um, and like the none nothing in the book is explained. It's all coming from the perspective of of a guy just witnessing it, and he has no expertise in it. And um, uh, it, it's very Lovecraftian in that sense, where nothing is given an explanation. And after reading that, I found out that um, he actually did explain a lot of this stuff uh, in a um, Karnaki story. So I sought that out, and um, yeah, it it delivers sort of a pseudo scientific explanation for how Lovecraftian deities work. Yeah. Although at that point I'd say he's getting away from pseudo scientific. That's one of the points where like when he does get into sort of old school folkloric and cosmic stuff, uh, it's very evocative and very creepy. Like his imagery is actually really creepy. Uh, there's the one about the, the boat at sea and shadows kind of coalesce about it. Uh, there's the one that's about, um, a, a haunted castle and um, literally uh, lips form out of the walls and start whistling, which is extremely like that. It's that line of just, it's so absurd and it, 
it, but it, it it's described in a very creepy way. And I would definitely... Yeah, I think that would work in a, in a modern horror movie. I think that would actually fit. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where it's like, it's scarier if you're willing to just be absurdist and surrealist and yeah, this is this is insane, but that's exactly why it's scary. It's so uncanny that something like that would happen, right? Because they're giant lips, right? Coming out of the, the wall. And then, of course, there is the hog, which, um, which, uh, and, and it, I have to say, pigs are very scary. He goes to great length describing, you know, the, the, scre the squeals of the hogs. And if you've ever heard that, that's a very disturbing sound. <laughs> like, it yeah, is. Yeah, it, it's, it also comes up a lot in House on the Borderland, especially with the swine things. Like, they, he really thinks pig flesh is disgusting. So, it's yeah. interesting. He doesn't. He doesn't eat a lot of pork, I guess. But it's. It's. I. I think he's. Um, like how Lovecraft was afraid of sea creatures. Uh, Hodgson <laughs> was afraid of pigs. Well, I. You know what? I. I. I can see it. There is something uncanny yeah. and kind of creepy about pigs, and because they're. they're it, it might be an uncanny valley situation because they are close to humans in a lot of ways and right. how they look, and apparently they taste the same. But that's probably here, neither here nor there. Oh boy. Um, um, well, well, the the phrase for eating humans in some long pig right. is apparently we're very similar in how we taste, so <laughs> that's weird. Yes. Okay. Well, it's but 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 even just nevertheless, it's like you think of things like uh, Lord of the Flies and and um, and you know like there 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 is something. Yeah. Even like um, the um, Hannibal, the the novel, right? The guy who got. Killed right. by or got Mason Verger, yeah, by used to feed people and... to his pig. Right. No, he didn't get disfigured by the pigs. He fed people to pigs. He was disfigured by Hannibal. Oh, but I thought Hannibal, Hannibal fed him to pigs. Maybe that was uh, just I think in the he, movie. I think I think he dies by being fed to the pigs. But he he was oh, okay. Um, Never mind. He's initially um, Hannibal drugs. Anyway, whatever. It's not relevant. But I, I just I just saw the movie and I know it's not very close to the book. So yeah. whatever. Well, the um, they, Hannibal drugged him into ripping his face off is what happened. And then okay. his revenge was going to be feeding people to the pigs. And as um, people are, who know pigs are fond of point out, they are cute. You know, don't get me wrong. Pigs can be very cute. But as, as we, as people know, if you lie down in a pig pen, uh, you could get eaten by those pigs. They will eat people, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of a creepy thing to to realize. Anyway, the point, the long and the short of it is, he very effectively describes a horrifying cosmic entity who is a giant pig. Which, when I say that, sounds a bit silly, but it is very scary in the story itself. It's very, very well done as a horror story. I would say, uh, I was, I was really impressed. Yeah, the hog, I think, is definitely hands above the yeah. best one of these and and uh yeah it's a it's a good choice so he's you can see him and that's one of you that's like i say you can like you were saying he was you can see him really finding his footing as a horror writer and i think that was uh that was something he was really uh, getting good at yeah as it went on. well house on the borderland i would also uh highly recommend um that one i think is is really interesting especially since it doesn't explain anything and then if you go into the karnaki story and it, it does give an explanation hmm. that's sort of like how 2001, you know, the novel versus the movie, you know, right. Well, you, even you can sort of look at Love, it both ways. Right. Even Lovecraft actually did something similar. And I wonder if Lovecraft might've been slightly inspired by these because, um, Oh, uh, he would... yeah, I actually have some quotes from Lovecraft. Lovecraft read some of these. Um, he, uh, prayed, praised, uh, house on the borderlands, though he said it was tainted by nauseatingly sick 
uh, stickly romantic sentimentality. Uh, unclear on what that means. It might just be it had human emotions in it. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, like love and stuff. Yeah. Lovecraft was, you know, he had his Non-white things that he liked in fiction. <laughs> well, I yeah yeah. yeah. Um, he thought uh, the Karnaki stories he read uh, quote uh, falls conspicuously below the level of his other books. Of the other books, uh, we here find a more or less conventional stock figure of the infallible detective type, the progeny of Monsieur Dupont and Sherlock Holmes, and uh, the close kin of Algernon Blackwood's John Silence, moving through scenes and events badly marred by an atmosphere of professional occultism. A few of the episodes, however, of, are of undeniable power and afford glimpses of the peculiar genius characteristic of the author. Yeah, that's actually... Uh, though he, so he, go ahead. He wouldn't have read The Hog since that was published in 1947, years after Hodgson's death and after Lovecraft's death. So Right. Huh. Okay, I didn't realize that. But, but it, that's very significant, though. Um, you can see Lovecraft's attitude there because he was also taking the line of you know, anti-occultism, anti-spiritualism. He was definitely... And again, I, I think that as you get into the 30s and the late 20s, you start to see more of a pushback against uh, spiritualism and occultism as a, as, a, as a realistic philosophy, and it becomes the domain of, you know, crackpots and quacks and things. And, um, and I think Lovecraft uh, was very leading very heavy on being it, it, I think if Lovecraft had lived a little longer he you would have seen him becoming like a golden age science fiction kind of guy he would have been one of uh, John W Campbell's crew they would have gotten along with their horrible racism and whatnot uh but he um but but like the later Lovecraft stories very heavily lean towards uh science fiction as opposed to the more mystical and supernatural stuff in this earlier stuff even though they're somewhat joined in some of the myth uh, in some of the the mythos the, the the quote cthulhu mythos is a little overstated because it was really assembled kind of after the fact by uh, august derleth yeah. and people but but um in as much there were definitely things like the plains of lang and 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 uh the Kadath and the cold waste which appear, for instance, in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath as this very mystical thing, but then when they appear in, at the Mountains of Madness, there's much more of a, yeah, it was from aliens who visited Earth, and, and there's a pseudo-scientific explanation for it. And I think, um, I think uh, with Lovecraft, you can see that that was, he was very, falling very heavily on the, you know, anti, uh, anti-mystical, anti-occult, uh, side of the thing. Yeah. He, he, well, I mean, he was a he was a outspoken atheist and right. didn't believe in supernatural stuff in his own writing. So he thought some of it was was interesting for use in fiction, like um, uh, you know, Blavatsky stuff. Um, he didn't think any of it had any merit, uh, but he thought it was interesting for use in fiction. Um, of course, you know, Lovecraft was also had a lot of beliefs that were based on nonsense you know racist stuff but uh um, yeah, yeah he did consider himself a rationalist right yeah he joined like rationalist societies later on and became very um uh he was apparently one of the people he wasn't i don't know if he actually hung out with houdini but he he sort of ended up hanging in the same circles that houdini is oh he actually he did he ghost wrote a story for houdini oh okay there you go yeah absolutely um which was one of his early early uh forays into cosmic horror Right. 
it was written under Houdini's name, but uh, um, that's um, uh, under the under the uh, pyramids. Uh, okay. Weird one, <laughs> with the giant alien sphinx. Right. Yeah. No. But yeah, they were definitely in, in as much as I don't know if there was necessary in, in as much as there was the uh the like the Doyle versus Houdini conflict became a you know a, a you know battle lines were being drawn. I feel like at that time in history people had a lot more to worry about but in as much as that was a thing i think uh it sounds like uh lovecraft was very heavily on the uh on the houdini side of things um, yeah and and but yeah like i said i do think the the degree of detail that hodgson goes into in these uh implies someone who's trying to sort of educate people into the scientific nature of occultism and specifically we're talking about a thing by the way called spiritualism which uh was a legitimate in quotes legitimate belief uh that people had it throughout the the mid to late 19th century up until the early 20th century and it was literally yeah tr like like we say it was trying to extrapolate uh spiritual stuff via science via scientific method and uh you know it, it did it does seem to have mostly died down after world war 1 um because of this this pushback that we're talking about but it was yeah actually the um the opening of uh Alistair Crowley's novel Moonchild uh actually takes place in a séance and Crowley seems to be making fun of the whole thing right which is interesting but yeah like yeah like Crowley was sort of steering it over into more of a a psychological thing like Crowley never to my knowledge, he never went. Oh yes, I've got magical powers, and I can. Th well, except well, he did, but he he kind yeah, of he, yeah. He was he was uh, sort of back and forth. We went over that in the yeah. uh, in our uh, Simon F episode, but yeah, um, he 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 knew that he, basically he saw the value of magic as a marketing gimmick, essentially. <laughs> like he knew that if he told people he was you know cursing them or whatever, that that would have a psychological effect on it. But he definitely seems to have been dealing with it from a more psychological perspective than you know, oh yeah, we can harness ghosts to do things for me and that kind of thing. Uh, and I think that's that's sort of where those two beliefs kind of ended up synthesizing uh, together by the time you get to the 20s and 30s. I've got a um, a quote from the um, uh, the opening of one of the stories that was um, uh, put at the beginning from uh, the 1910 edition of The Idler, which is the magazine these were published in. Um, Complaints continue to reach us from all parts of the country to the effect of uh, to the effect that Mr. W. Hope Hodgson's Karnacki stories are producing a widespread epidemic of nervous prostration. So uh, far from being able to reassure or calm our nervous readers, we are compelled to warn them that the Whistling Room, which we published this month, is worse than ever. Our advertising manager had to go to bed for two days after reading the advance sheets. A proofreader has sent in his resignation. And worst of all, our smartest office boy. But this is no place to be well or seek uh, for sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a William Castle. Uh, uh, yeah, years that's early. what I was thinking. Yeah, exactly. That's that's uh, that's that's the that's a that's a Roger. But they, they obviously picture. knew they had. Yeah, but uh, this was a couple stories into Karnacki, uh, the Karnacki series, and I think they they had um, an idea that they had sort of a hit on their hands at the time with the yeah with the um series yeah like yeah, i said there's only nine of these but um uh a lot of that probably came from 
uh, uh, Hodgson's early death. Right. Well, and he only published six, if I'm not mistaken, and three of them were posthumous. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, three of them were, or at least two of them were posthumous. Probably three. Um, I, I, uh, three I, I, my understanding is that six of them were published when he was alive and three of them were posthumous. Yeah. Uh, and they were, they were compiled uh, Yeah, he died at age here. 40. So like Lovecraft, he didn't, he didn't live that long and he had a, a pretty big effect. Um, his actual like prose, it's kind of cloying, but um, there's definitely, um, he gets the emotions across and sort of the, uh, one thing I, I do like is that um, Karnacki's not like, um, uh, he's he's smart and calculating and stuff, but he does uh, have fears. Like he does become afraid at certain things, and he describes oh, yeah. describes that in his narration. And uh, it's very clear that he's he's spooked a lot of the times, even in some yeah, of the yeah. cases where it turned out to not be supernatural events. He he was really spooked for a little bit. Um, there's a constant uh, uh, bit. Because uh, the stories, like we said, are uh, Karnacki telling them to three of his friends who come by um, to his house to, I guess, just sit by his fireplace and listen to this guy talk. Um, and uh, he often uh, interjects with, do you understand? Yeah. Or, um, if only you could understand, or yeah, do you yeah. get me? Do you? <laughs> yeah. Like, variations on that. It's It's a little bit repetitive, but at the same time, it sort of works to... Um, to get you thinking about uh, emotional states and so forth, so it, it sort of works in context. Yeah, it's 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 engaging with you. Like it's it's sort of you can see how Karnaki would be a compelling storyteller because he's he's trying to engage with the audience and acknowledging that they're there in a way that these kind of old timey cozy stories often they just the narrator kind of disappears into himself and just keeps lecturing and lecturing. Whereas the Karnaki stories do acknowledge that there's an audience, even in the story, uh, listening to what he's saying, um, including sometimes interjections and questions from uh, the three, the, the four guys. Um, one of whom is the, the, the narrator is named Dodgson being written by a guy named Hodgson. So uh, <laughs> you've got that. Yeah, the others on. are uh, Jessup, Arkwright and Taylor. Not Taylor, much is yeah. known. I don't know why there's so many of these. Like you just needed the one. Well, maybe they it's don't sort really of contribute anything. Maybe it's just sort of semi autobiographical, and it was a kind of yeah. There's I had I had four pals, and we all used to hang around and listen to these cool stories by this one guy, and I I turned it into a, you know narratives of a ghost hunter, basically. You know that that's not uncommon at that that particular. Maybe, time. but like I think you could have cut out three of these characters without any problems whatsoever. But... <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the point is just that it's a it's a social gathering, right? Like it's a big group of yeah. people getting get, coming around to listen to this guy talk, and and every story ends with him suddenly abruptly going, "All right, out you go," and they all have <laughs> yes. to go out off to the yeah. embankment, which it's, I was just um, mentioned. Uh, according to the agreed or to the um, established formula, as the narrator yeah. keeps saying. <laughs> yeah, and he he always it's always it's always very much on Karnaki's terms. Like he's like, you don't yeah. ask any questions, you eat the dinner. You know, and you don't mention anything, and then suddenly he starts talking, tells you the story. He can maybe take a few questions or whatever, and then suddenly he'll sit up and go, "All right, out you go." <laughs> and yeah. That's the end of it. That's the end of the story. You gotta, you gotta leave. And people are like, "Well, he's enjoyable enough that we'll we'll stick to his rules, essentially." So, but he does seem as a li a little bit more gregarious than Sherlock Holmes. I would say he's a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
he definitely has has more emotional states, and he seems a little bit uh, more pleasant to be around. Yeah, the, that's um, right. Donald Pleasance played him as very um, uh, friendly, and mm-hmm. and um, um, he didn't do the "do you understand" thing to everybody, but uh, uh, he did sort of um, make small talk and stuff in a way that I don't think Sherlock Holmes is usually portrayed as doing. Yeah, it's sociable. I mean, Sherlock Holmes isn't usually incredibly sociable he's got watson as his friend and watson's the one who relays all his stories for him uh whereas karnaki obviously kind of delights in having an audience to tell his stories to as it were so that's kind of that's kind of fun um so uh Uh, so yeah karnaki um in addition to that adaptation there seems to be a, a big finish who do the doctor who audio dramas they seem to have done a few adaptations but i didn't listen to any of them um there's also been a bunch of books featuring uh, Karnaki in various ways, uh, you know, tying him into the Cthulhu mythos or um, teaming him up with Sherlock Holmes. I think Kim Newman's done a few uh, Karnaki Sherlock Holmes team ups, um, and uh, uh, he's appeared in comic books, uh, most notably, as we mentioned, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where he's sort of portrayed as a psychic. He has like visions of the future. Um, which doesn't happen in the books, but, you know, whatever. Maybe you pick that up along the way. I mean, it's the kind of thing he might take seriously anyway. He might have de- tried to develop his psychological uh, projective yeah. capacity. Or, or maybe he came, he came in contact with some sort of spirit that it, it, um, advanced his yeah. ability. You know, whatever. It, it could fit. Um, I mean, he's certainly, he's always talking about all these adventures that aren't in the stories. He's had lots and lots yeah, of yeah. adventures. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, these do the uh, Sherlock Holmes thing of uh, mentioning cases that aren't actually documented. So, like, in this case, it, there's a line, the Black Veil case, when young Astor died, you remember, he said it was a piece of silly superstition and stayed outside, poor devil. And none of that is explained. And it's like the uh, Sherlock Holmes... Uh, giant rat of Samara um, thing that he, he mentions in a few stories that yeah, the world so it is, is not like, ready to know about. Right. And there is a good, yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, general uh, sensibility of, of, of world building. Or Sumatra, sorry, giant yeah. rat of Sumatra. Yeah, there's a whole, there's a, there's a, that set, that adds to the sense of world building, which again, is I think something that really makes these work very well. Um, um, so what would you recommend these to people or, I, I mean, they're a fast read, uh, they're, you know, it's, it, you have to like, you know, if you like old turn of the century type stuff, then, uh, sure. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I'd say that the hog is probably the the one I'd seek out, yes, uh, maybe I, read it after house on the borderlands. Yeah. I would recommend the oh. hog and also, uh, the, uh. And and the whistling room is pretty good too. Uh, there's and and even the horse of the invisible is pretty pretty decent. Uh, but they're just yeah. they're they're pretty minor. It's kind of it's he's he's in many ways more kind of interesting for as a historical footnote than the stories themselves. Yeah. But the, but the one the what he does get pretty effective as a horror writer, especially with the hog. So uh, you know that that's the only one I would recommend to a modern reader, as it were. But you know he's I'm not sorry I read them. They were they were entertaining reads yeah i i definitely say seek out house in the borderland as well um you too adam if you have time sure uh, um but uh uh he, he wrote some other ones that are, are fairly well regarded he seemed to write a lot of uh seagoing things he was 
actually a, a seaman uh, earlier in his life. So um, he seemed to write to have written some like horror stories set at sea. Actually, one of the Karnaki stories right. is a horror story set at sea, but like some like novel length ones. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe I'll check those out at some point. But uh, yeah, seemed like an interesting guy. Uh, I I didn't really look into his um, uh, biography and stuff, but he it says uh, he on the Wikipedia entry. Uh, he also attracted some notice as a photographer and achieved renown as a bodybuilder. <laughs> so that's okay. interesting. Uh, that does not come across in the stories, but there you go. <laughs> nope. Interesting. While the dawn is breaking and the seance is ended, so bid your farewells to the blasted spirit of Philip Rice and the tormented shade of Adam Prosser. As always, we pay obeisance to producer and engineer Alex Ross, who acts as a conduit for the Voices from Beyond, which is to say he hosts the podcast, and the faint, eerie sound of music tinkling down the hallways was composed by uh, Jack Furyk. Uh, if you truly wish to glimpse beyond the veil, you can subscribe to our Patreons to help us pay for hosting costs and incidentals. If you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. You can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spear Hafok with an F underscore for Philip. Also, if you've been enjoying the show, we'd really, really appreciate it if you could rate us a review on Apple iTunes, which would really help us boost our profile and reach more people with the show. So, out you go. Until next time.